Our scripture reading this morning is from Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus the Lord of hosts says, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much. And behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Thank you, Bruce. I hope you'll hold hold that place. We'll certainly be looking at a good portion of what he just read. Imagine with me you're at the counter of a store. You've got a few things, and the cashier is scanning those items, and you're paying attention. You're paying attention particularly because one item was like an especially good deal and you just want to make sure the thing rings upright. And so you're like paying attention, watching the number, and all of a sudden, sure enough, it, it doesn't ring up, right? And because you're a Christian, you act nicely about this and you just kind of call it to their attention. Hey, uh, I, I noticed that didn't ring up. I, there was a sign and, and you explained like this should have been significantly cheaper and so then you hate this because there's a line that forms behind you, but I guess it's a really good deal, so you call that attention. And, and so whatever, they call the manager, they get, get whoever needs to, they walk and they find, oh yeah, it was marked that way, we're so sorry for the inconvenience. So they work the magic on the register, and sure enough, you get, get the deal you, you had thought you were getting, and it goes on. What happened there is no big deal, they made it right. It's a simple case of something not registering, the way it should have registered. Something not registering the way it should register. And most of the time, that really doesn't matter a whole lot. No big deal. But there are times when something not registering has actually serious consequences. So there are times, imagine with me, what happens all over this country at dozens of airports when we really, we really depend on the TSA and all of their screening equipment 
registering exactly what needs to be registered, especially if, God forbid, some terrorist should try to do something to harm people. We count on those that are in our military, especially those that deal with like early early warning systems or missile detection. We count on them. We count on them registering what they need to register to keep us safe. National security is at risk. We count on those that are looking at MRIs or CAT scans or x-rays. We count on them seeing what they need to see. We count on those tests registering what they need to register because our, our physical health might be on the line Dangerous things happen if people miss warning signs, if people aren't dialed into what they need to be, if someone is careless or negligent, if they miss the signs, it matters, and it matters spiritually as well. It matters if we miss some important indicators of where things are spiritually. Our lives, our lives could be in great spiritual danger. And I think this principle and this concept helped us understand the book of Haggai, because people in Haggai are in great spiritual danger. That's why God has a word for them. If you're new to that book of the Bible, and probably most of us aren't as familiar with that book as we are so many of the other books of the Bible. It's a story from 2,500 years ago. Haggai is a prophet, and this is the setting around, and we talked about this a little bit last week, around 40,000 people have been resettled in Jerusalem. They were moving from Babylon and getting resettled back in Israel, particularly in Jerusalem, after they had been deported. Some of those had been deported and had lived in exile for 70 years, their whole life. And they're getting resettled. They come back to a city that's in ruins. And because they are God's covenant people, the clear expectation of them in the Old Testament is that when it comes to resettling, a part of that resettling will be rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the place of worship, And the people actually start to do that. That's what Ezra tells us. They actually start to rebuild the temple. But then they quit. For like 15 years they quit. And then Haggai comes. And his message really centers on this rebuilding effort. It's a fair question to go... And we've got a book of the Bible, and the Bible seems to be like this this book, particularly the theme is rebuilding this temple. What's... What's so important about the temple? What's so critical about getting that rebuilt? What's the problem? Do people really have to have a temple? I mean, let's face it, God's everywhere. So why is it so critical that a temple get rebuilt? The temple is going to come up repeatedly in both chapters of Haggai. Why did it matter so much? I think for us to understand this, we've got to realize that the temple is more just a Again, a little bit of background here. It's going to go a long way for us understanding kind of the pulse of this book. The temple in the Old Testament is more than just a religious building. There's so much more we could say, but, but let me give you a few words that the temple, all, what it actually represented and how it functioned. The temple was a place of remembrance for the people of Israel. The temple was a place of remembrance. I mean, God had done this great work. He had set his people apart. He had made promises. He had kept the promises he had made. And the temple sat in Jerusalem, and it's much like some of the monuments and memorials in Washington, D.C., that basically say this is something that happened, and we're going to remember this, and it's going to signal this is the people that we are. 
And in many ways, as the temple sat in Jerusalem, it is telling a story. It's telling a story that stretches back even to Moses when he set up the tabernacle, certainly to King David and King Solomon and, and, and even, even those like Josiah and Hezekiah. It's telling the story of this is who we are. But the temple was in ruins. It was telling a different story, wasn't it? The temple was meant also to be a place of presence and fellowship. It was meant to be a place of of, of fellowship with God. The, the temple is a reminder that God is present here. He meets us here. No, we're not holy, but through sacrifices, God's going to accept us even as we are unholy, and he's going to make us holy before him. We're, we're distant because of our sin, but God has actually moved near to us. God is present with us. God is a God of love and mercy, and we can meet him there. We can have fellowship with him. God is present now, there's, there's furniture and structures with inside the temple, and there's like an inner court called the most holy place where, where the presence of God was. But even in that, there the, the temple sat in the middle of the country saying, God's present with us. We have fellowship with him. But the temple also was a place of worship and devotion. So yes, it was a place you went to meet with God. But it was also a place where you didn't go empty-handed. So you brought a, an animal, one of the prescribed animals, and you, you worshiped the Lord by sacrifice. Cost you something, and even in that you're recognizing I'm, it, it takes blood being shed to reconcile my relationship with the holy God. But the temple was lying in ruins. We have to appreciate that because things do look quite different now. We live in a different, even kind of era of biblical history than they did. We, we look back at much of the Old Testament and we read about the temple, but then when we come to the New Testament, we've got, we've got to process some things. The fact that Jesus Christ has come, that changes, that changes everything. Because the Word, God the Son, has become flesh. It dwelt among us, so it, it tabernacled. It, when Christ is here, he's, he's the temple. John would say, we saw his glory. And when Jesus died, it's interesting, it tells us that as Jesus was taking his last breath, the temple in Jerusalem, remember it says the curtain was torn, symbolizing there's access now for people to God. Basically, Jesus' death, his life, his death, his resurrection makes the temple obsolete now. We're, we are living in a different time. God has come in, in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, if we talk about what's the place of our remembrance, well, it's Jesus. That's why we remember his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. Jesus is our, is our person, not just a place, but a person of fellowship with God. It's only, only through Jesus that we have fellowship with him. Jesus has become, Jesus has become the, our, our person who we worship and we give our devotion to. And there's something different. We, where two or three are gathered, Jesus says, I'm present there. You don't need that temple structure any longer. The church, the church, the people of God are the ones that make God visible to the world. So this book takes place before Jesus changed everything. But it does help us understand how critical it was, the temple to their worship, and, and how significant it was that the temple was still in ruins. The people had started, the initial intention was good, the initial efforts were good, but somewhere it stopped. 
somewhere it all like changed and everybody kind of got comfortable with this temple just being in ruins. We, we know how some of that works, right? There's something in your house. There's something in your car. There's something in your life that doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work like it once did. And if I were to walk into your house or you were to walk in my house, I would see it immediately. But you don't even see it anymore. You don't even notice it. You've gone, you've gone a decade without that switch, that thing working like it's supposed to. Because you've just gotten used to it. The people of God were used to this place of remembrance and fellowship and worship, just lying in ruins. They didn't see it. And verse 8 would tell us of this chapter that as long as that temple lay in ruins, it was actually telling lies about who God is. God will tell him, build it so that I may be glorified. When we hear the word glorified, it's a word we, we, we encounter in the Bible, but sometimes I, maybe we don't understand it completely. What, what it means to be glorified is you feel the weight of something or you feel the heaviness of something. And God is saying, as long as my house is sitting there in ruins, there is no heaviness or weightiness to who I am in, in your midst. It's almost as if I'm, I'm taking a back seat. And I, I want us to, to see something because there was something that they hadn't recognized, something they hadn't noticed. And, and I want us to notice that we don't always see some things. God has to reveal them to us. God has to reveal something especially like what our true priorities really are. What I'm saying is we don't always have a good estimation of what's going on in our real priorities. And sometimes God just pulls, the, <laughs> pulls it all back and says, this is, this is where your priorities are. He reveals the nature. So in this passage, beginning in verse 2, he leads with a quotation of what, here's what you're saying, and then he, he follows it with a question. He had to speak to people who, who aren't just going to course correct on their own. They're not going to get this. So this is why God sent Haggai and Haggai speaking to the people. And, and look what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. But the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it? Is it the right time? Oh, oh it's the right time for you to rebuild your paneled houses but it's not the right time to build the temple. And, and God tells them, consider your ways. What really mattered to God was this rebuilding effort, and every day that went by, it's saying, actually, that's just not that important. Oh, oh don't get me wrong, it's a priority, but it's not, it's not one of the main ones. What should haunt us, even reading this years and years later, what should haunt us, is that those people didn't see it. It took God speaking through a prophet to get their attention, which tells us something about our, ourselves as well, is that we may not always recognize where our priorities lie right now at any given point in time. We may not see it either. But just as God used Haggai 2,500 years ago, he might be using him again today to tell us our priorities aren't right and we need to consider our ways. You say, in some ways, there, there are significant differences. In some ways, there's not that many differences at all. You see, any person that, 
as following God, any person that names the name of Christ, there will always be on the ground, in the heart ways of expressing our devotion to God. There will always be ways. There will always be ways in which you take your time, you take your schedule, and you express devotion to God or you don't. There will always be these things that show our priorities. There will always be conversations. There will always be spending patterns, intentional or unintentional. There will always be friendships. There will always be relationships, maybe friendships, maybe romantic relationships. There will always be series of decisions we're making, sacrifices we're making, pursuits that occupy us for a season or longer. You see, in Haggai's time, the issue was no one was rebuilding month after month. Our issues may be different, but there's still going to be something on the ground in our hearts saying, this is my priorities. This is what really matters to me right now. So God says, consider your ways. If we were to expand that just a little bit, I think what God is saying is take to heart how things are going for you. Where, where your chosen lifestyle, where is that leading you? Take a, take a look. Can I ask you to do exactly what Haggai was giving the word of the Lord to the people of God back then? Can I ask us all to consider our ways? Look at what's become a priority. Assess your time. Assess your choices. What is it right now that's making you happy? What is it that is actually angering you? What is it that would really, really hurt to lose? What, what gets the leftovers in your life? What gets calendared first in your week or your month or your year? And then what gets kind of the, the scraps of what else you have time for? What gets, what gets prioritized first in your spending? And then what gets the leftovers? H- have we made our walk with God a priority? We have to look hard because there are going to be these in the heart and on the ground ways of expressing our devotion to the Lord, but, but there's also going to be competitors. So we should have this consuming passion for God, for his cause, just like they were supposed to. But in Haggai's time, their own houses had become a priority. And, and that's actually a, a good thing. They had to live somewhere, but actually a good thing had turned into an ultimate thing. And God calls them to consider their ways. Take to heart where this lifestyle is leading you. Yeah, you've got to live your life with all of its commitments, but something's going to be at the center. Something you're actually going to put all the weight on. Something's going to matter than, more than other things. Sometimes we watch uh, shows on HGTV or DIY. They have these shows where it's like the, the bargain hunt trying to find this house and they, they meet, a realtor meets with this couple or, or this person and they say, What's important to you? And they'll say, I, I've got to have an open concept, whatever that means. My wife knows what all this means. I don't know what all this means. Or I, 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 we, need, we need four bedrooms. We need multiple bathrooms. We, we need a view. What really matters to us is that out our window, we can see the ocean. We need a deck. We need outdoor living space. And they've got all these things to say, this is a priority. And often what happens is they're willing to yeah, we'd like to have this, but we must have this. 
We'll compromise on this, but we must have this. I find in our lives, there's lots of things that matter to us, but there are a few critical things that we will say, I'm willing to live with this being gone. And I just have to wonder sometimes, am I okay with living kind of a lukewarm life spiritually? If, if I get something else that just seems to matter a little bit more? I mean, Haggai's telling him, are you willing to live with that temple in, in ruins? By your actions, that's what you're saying. What am I willing to live with in my relationship with God if a bunch of other stuff is working the way I want it to? It, it's a significant question. And again, we have to evaluate. This is why I think the Lord, did you notice repeatedly in Haggai, he says, consider your ways, consider your ways, consider your ways. He doesn't just say it once. He says it multiple times because I think sometimes we just need to be shocked into actually recognize, and am I seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Am I, am I pursuing the, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings? Does that matter to me or have other things become a priority? In Haggai's time, it was, it was tempting for them to make excuses. They were saying, well, God, it's, it's not that we're not going to rebuild the temple. It's just the time hasn't come. And God just kind of clears that out and says, it's not about timing. It's about priorities. Maybe saying the same thing today. You feel this, like, tug on your conscience. And it's God speaking. And maybe what you're tempted to say is, God, I, I want to obey. It's just like there's a couple other things that I've got to get in place. So maybe you see your life and you recognize, maybe God has like opened your eyes to the fact that you're consumed with, you're consumed with money. You're consumed with materialism. You're consumed with greed. But you've told yourself, actually, once I get to this place in life where I have this amount of money, then, then, then I'll have enough. And I actually, I look forward to the day I could be generous because I'm, I'm making money. I just look forward to that day. But it hasn't happened yet. But when it happens, I, it's a priority to me. I promise it is. But is it? Or, or maybe you've convinced yourself that like, okay, once I'm married, I will be sexually pure. Right now, it's just hard. And so, Lord, I know this isn't great, and I know I ought to make a priority of my sexual purity, but I, I, I'm not going to do that right now. I, 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 it matters to me. I, I, I don't want to keep looking at porn, and I, I'm going to change, but it's just, like, it's just not the right time. Or maybe you're, you're dealing with anxiety, and you think, well, once God just works this one thing out that I'm really stressed about, it's really like pressing all the buttons in my life, once that works out, then... And then I really, I'll stop being consumed with fear. I'll start trusting. Or maybe you're battling addiction and you're in bondage and you tell yourself, like everybody tells himself, it's not that bad, but all the lies and all the indiscretions and all the dumb risks you take are telling a different thing. And all that risk is destroying an authentic relationship with God. And you say, you know what? I've had enough. I, I'm done with this. But that's what you said last year and the year before. You know, it's time. I got, I got to work on this. I, I, I'm going I'm to really work on this and... I'm just asking you to consider. I'm asking us to consider. Do we think like once, you know, once I get control of everybody and everything in the world, then I'll really, I'll feel at peace in life. 
I just, that's all I need. Just people to act like, you know, normal people. And then I'll, then I'll settle down. But the question is, where is your walk with God? I talk to people regularly who there's just something tripping them up to like 100%, God, your will be done. And often, often we're blinded to it. The people in Haggai's day probably thought, God is just calling us out. And you might be thinking that too. What, what comes next? Well, for them, it was like, you go up to the mountain, you get wood, you bring it down, and you build a house. So I would say for us as a church, it's our move. What are we going to do? Who are we going to talk to? What accountability will we invite into our life if we're going to have a spiritual reset? And I believe that we can. Who's going to help guide you through that? And, and I don't even just think of this individually, but actually in my prayers this week, as I thought, Haggai speaks to not just an individual, but he speaks to a whole community, and the whole community hears from the word, hears the word of the Lord, hears from God. And it made me stop and pray and I guess even dream a little. I wonder if God would do a work here at the end of the summer. God might do a work here beginning in the fall. If God might do a work in our hearts where we just quit pretending and we quit playing games. And it's not just in my heart or not just in one or two of us or five or ten of us. But what if God did just this massive work in our lives where all of us come face to face with a God who really knows our priorities anyway. Who has pulled back all the things covering up and says, this is what's going on. This is where your life is. And what if God did a a heart work in all of us? What if we became consumed with love of God and love for our neighbor? What if we became consumed with the people that don't yet know Christ? And what if if God moved us to be more hospitable? What if God changed not just one or two of us, but what if he changed hundreds of us? And, And it was never the same. What if someone walked in in November? And they really weren't sure, they, they really didn't have a category because here was a people that weren't just like this super spiritual elite, but it was people who, who had a priority of loving God with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind, and all of their strength. What if God did such a work? What would that mean for the schools that we're all going to go back to? What will that mean for the businesses, the neighborhoods? I, It's amazing to think about. We need God's help to see. We're blind to our next spiritual step. We're in in danger because we don't always pay attention. We're not as careful as we should have been. We're in danger of being complacent and careless. And and God, God is telling us, consider your ways. But God also is helping us in one other area because we we also don't always recognize all the things that God is using to get our attention. We don't recognize all the time what our true priorities really are, and God says, here's what they are. I'll tell you what they are. And we don't always realize all the things that God is using to get our attention. We might be missing some of these, some of these ways, some of these pathways in which God says, here's what's going on. Take a look at what's going on in your life. And in that very moment, he's trying to get our attention, trying to get our focus back where it needs to be. Look at verse 5 and 6. So this is God speaking. Verse 5 says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And notice just time after time here, he says, just take a look at it. 
Look at what God is trying to use to get your attention. You've sown much, but you've harvested little. You, you eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag, but the bag has holes in it. You know what Haggai's telling them to do? Look at how dissatisfied you are with your life. That's what God's using to get your attention. Look, look at it. It's not going the way you think it is. And, and I, I remember when I first read Haggai, I thought, man, they're just in the midst of this awful famine. It must be the worst time ever. But actually, that's not the case. They, they do have food, don't they? They do have food to eat. The passage says it. They do have things to drink. The passage says so. They do have uh, protection. They have clothes to wear. They're drinking. They're earning money. It's just this. It's never enough. In the words of that great theologian, Mick Jagger, they can't get no satisfaction. They're not able to get it. And like, this is what I always wanted. And it's not. It's not what they wanted. This is what I've been working for. But then it doesn't deliver. Nothing in life is going the way they want it to go. Even when you think, man, I look at, I feel like I'm making more money than I've ever made. But yet it doesn't seem to equate in anything that's meaningful. You have the relationship. You always want it. Family life's pretty good. You always kind of said, I, I want that job, that solid job, and you, you got it. You're able to travel. You got the look you want. You got the toys you want. You, you're getting the grades that you, you always hope to get. You're making friends with the people you always wanted to be friends with. You're getting, you're getting into retirement, and that, that's what you had always like, looked forward to. Everybody's kind of respecting you. And you thought, that's what I want. I want people. And it doesn't satisfy. Consider this God may be using what you're feeling to point you to the only thing that can really satisfy, and that is God himself. A thing that just isn't settling well right now. Could God be using that? There, there's more. Look at verse 9. Haggai's going to tell him, you looked for much. Another translation said this way, you expected, you expected a lot. Behold, it came to little, and when you did bring what you did bring in home, I, I blew it away. Because my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house, Sometimes God is not just going to use uh, a dissatisfaction, but sometimes God's going to use unmet expectations. Don't get me wrong, God's not like playing games and we aren't his puppets or his pawns. But sometimes we expect lots of things. Sometimes we expect everything. Sometimes we wake up in the morning we have, a, we have like our plan of how this day should go. And it is just one failed expectation after another. So-and-so does this. This didn't happen. This isn't right. That isn't right. She should have. He didn't. And then it's just one day. And then sometimes the day becomes a week. And the week becomes a year. And then it becomes a decade. And we just find ourselves, no one, nothing meets our expectations. Could God be saying, you expected a lot. 
and you're only getting a little, what's going on here? Maybe God's trying to get our attention. Are there areas that are off? Are there areas where we need to repent? There's one more place. Look at, look at verse 10. It says, therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And God says, I've called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain, the new wine, oil and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. And I want to say, that about covers it. You know what else God will use? God will use even difficult circumstances. I think we have to be very, very careful here. Because what I'm not saying, what I'm not saying, can you draw a straight line from this, like, world disaster, this personal tragedy, and draw a straight line to, well, the reason why this happened is because God's doing this. I don't think you can always do that. I actually think rarely can you draw that, like that straight line in our knowledge. I mean, I, I, I don't know what it's like to run a world with 7 billion people. I don't know what it's in charge to, like, like to be in charge of a galaxy. So I, I don't pretend that I can sort through every reason why God may allow or cause this to happen and it may have this impact. So, so please, please hear what, what I'm saying and what I'm, what I'm not saying. But I do want to remind us is that God does use these things going on. Can we always draw a straight line? I don't think we can. This bad report, this natural disaster, we can't always draw a straight line. But in this case, you actually can. So God says, I'm the one who called all this to happen. God's people don't always obey him, but God's creation always does. I'll call my creation to get your attention. It's at least, it's at least worth asking the question when things begin to unravel, when we find ourselves in great, great pain and distress and difficult circumstances to say, Lord, do you have anything to say to me? That's interesting. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain. He said, pain, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Have we come complacent? Have, are we spiritually dull? God brought Haggai to like wake his people up, and I believe God might be using him again to wake his people up here at Ogletown. What if, what if one day, what if one day I got the call, the call that we all dread? I get the call, Mr. Hill, uh, there's some concerns, and the doctor needs to see you immediately. And let's uh, imagine a medical team reviews several tests and they give this proof and this proof and this evidence and this evidence to say, Curtis, what you're dealing with is a life-threatening condition. You know, in that moment, I do have a choice. I can go, I don't believe it. I'm going to ignore it. And I can, and maybe because doctors are fallible, they're human, Maybe I could count on the one in 100,000 percent chance. Yeah. They may, be, they may be right. But you would tell me, you're, Curtis, you're a fool to just dismiss it. You know, a doctor certainly could misdiagnose, but God never does. He never does. So if God is speaking to your conscience, if God is calling something out in your priorities, if God is telling you to consider your ways, 
He knows what he's talking about. So we should listen. If God is speaking, don't turn the volume down. If God is confronting you, like, let's, let's be done with excuses. If God has our attention, we say, speak, Lord. I'm listening. And if God has a hold of your heart today, a few questions might be, well, what, what is it going to look like to turn to God? And if you're turning from sin or misaligned priorities, what is it going to be to turn to God? What is repentance going to look like? What action are you going to take? How are you going to believe that he is a rewarder of those that seek him? And who else, who else, who else will be able to help you with where you are spiritually? Who else could you bring into your life and say, could you pray with me? Could you help me? Because I think God's doing a work. A word 2,500 years ago, I think is just as timely, just as relevant today. Saying, church, let's consider our ways. Let's consider our ways. Can I ask you to bow your head? In a moment, we're going to sing a song, a prayer to the Lord, asking him to restore us. Before we do that, can we just like search our hearts to make sure we're not singing words in vain, but we really are asking him, Lord, Lord, sort through all this. Maybe even now, now would be the time to like make a plan for your conversation this afternoon or who you're going to try to get a hold of or what work you're going to do on your heart with your priorities. Let me pray. Father, you speak and worlds come into order and you speak and our hearts are changed. I don't even know how you do it, but I do know it's happened. It's happened in my life time and time again. I pray that it would happen again this morning pull back our, our uh, faulty priorities, expose where you're trying to get our attention and we just haven't been paying attention. Lord, may we be a church that has considered our ways and we are ready for you to be magnified and glorified here. That we would feel your weight, just the weight of your judgment, but the weight of your mercy and your grace. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.